Well, it's so good to hear how God is using our compassion ministries to, to really love on people in our city and around the world, and also how he's working in the lives of those who are uh, moving out of the bleachers, as it were, and getting engaged in the lives of people in this way. <clears throat> so we welcome all of you who are joining us online, and also those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus, uh, as well as those of you who are gathering together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and in Northwest Calgary. <clears throat> so this weekend, we're continuing in our series in First John, a letter the Apostle John wrote in response to the heresy of Gnosticism that was infiltrating the early church, and aspects of which uh, we, we see bleeding into some churches today. Uh, those who embrace this false teaching uh, believe that true religion or true spirituality is all about the mind. Uh, the Gnostics had a very low view of the body, and from their perspective, what you did with your body was really irrelevant. And as a result, uh, they were unconcerned with sin. They were unconcerned uh, with immoral behavior. For the Gnostic, secret, esoteric, experiential knowledge was far more significant than a right view of God or a right view of Christ or even righteous behavior, which may explain why the Apostle John is so direct and even blunt uh, in the letter here as he confronts these falsehoods with very direct uh, and clear teaching on what it means to be a Christian. Now, as you're going to see in a moment, the passage that we're looking at today is one of the most difficult passages in the, in the Bible to understand and to absorb. And so right at the start, I want to encourage you to hang in there and to track with me as closely as you can, have an open mind, um, and, and hang in there to the end. If you do, I believe that you'll be glad you did and uh, that you didn't shut down or for that matter, run away. Uh, and so now that I've really got your attention, would you stand and join me in reading our scripture text for today? <clears throat> and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we be has that not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in them, they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come approaching you again, Lord, asking you to teach us and to show us, Lord, the meaning of your word. Please focus our minds. And Lord, may our hearts be soft to receive 
what you would have and what you'd want to say to us. And give us the courage and the will to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so a story is told of two guys who were out camping on the long weekend. And it was raining. And so they were in their tent. They were bored. And they were just passing the time. And the one fellow was kind of into trivia. And so he decides to try some of it on his friend. He says, Bill, did you know that the first person in powered flight was from Ohio? And did you know the first person ever to orbit the earth was from Ohio? In fact, did you know the first person to walk on the moon was from Ohio? So what do you think of that, Bill? Bill thought for a moment and then he said, sounds to me, There's a lot of people trying to get out of Ohio. (laughs) Anyhow, speaking of getting out, you probably heard a lot of people are getting out to watch the latest Avenger movie. I think it's called Endgame. The production of the Avenger movies and the related productions around it, such as Captain America and Iron Man and Thor, have made over $17 billion over the last 10 years. And that does not include uh, the last three-hour Avenger movie, which appears to be setting new records in terms of attendance and profits. Some of you will recall 40 years ago, Star Wars was also a major hit, making just under $10 billion back then, probably $20 billion now. Now, the reason I bring this up is I'm told that all these movies essentially have the same plot. The conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil. You would think people would get bored watching movies that essentially have the same plot. But obviously, with companies continuing to make billions, that is not the case at all. And I believe that the reason is because whether we acknowledge it or not, We're all created in the image of God, which means that deep within us, deep within us, we have a sense of justice, a sense of what is good and what is evil. In fact, even though they may vehemently disagree with me, I believe that the writers and the creators of many of these movies uh, derive their inspiration from the God-given sense of justice that we've been given. Now, the downside of people having a steady diet of these fictional stories is they may conclude that the biblical story is, is, uh, is fictional also, and that the biblical characters are mythical and imaginary. As in the early church, there are people, including some who call themselves Christians today, who question the biblical assertion that there is a spiritual realm that is as real as the natural or the earthly realm. People who question that there is a cosmic struggle going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, and that each kingdom is seeking the worship and the allegiance of every person on this planet. In fact, there are people, including a growing number of churches today, that ignore or explain away difficult passages like we're looking at today, who do not believe the devil is real, who do not believe that sin is a big deal, that we need a Savior or that Jesus is coming again. While we're not one of those churches, we believe the Bible is true from cover to cover, and we do not shy away or ignore difficult passages like the one that we're looking at today. Now, if that is not where you're at in terms of your worldview, then anything I talk about from here on from the scriptures won't carry a lot of weight or a lot of meaning for you. But since you're here anyways, just like to encourage you to, you know, tune in as I tell the biblical story of the cosmic struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. So here's the thing. The Bible clearly teaches that we live in two realms. The earthly, natural realm, 
and the heavenly spiritual realm. As humans, we are not just physical bodies and souls, but we are also spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This passage articulates the two realms and indicates that the earthly realm, that which we see and which we can touch and feel and all the rest, that realm is temporary. While the heavenly realm that we don't see is eternal. Now in 1 John 3 verse 8, the Apostle John writes this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now when you say that sounds like there is a cosmic battle or struggle going on between Christ and the devil, now let me back up a bit and go back to the beginning of the story. In verse 8, John says, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And that is true, of course, but there was a time when the devil wasn't the being that we now know him to be as laid out in Scripture. God didn't create the devil that we read about in the Scriptures. No, God created a beautiful and powerful angel, an angel who worshiped God and who stood for truth. When God created him, he gave him a free will, even as he gave us humans a free will. Isaiah 14, 12 tells us that God called this special angel that he created Morning Star. And unfortunately, Morning Star became filled with pride. And he used his free will to rebel against and to oppose his creator and to no longer stand in the truth. Verse 12 describes his decline this way. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Notice that no less than five times in this passage I just read, the devil says, I will. This is the heart of sin and also what John means in verse 4 when he says that sin is lawlessness. It is an attitude of defiance that disregards or rebels against God's authority that questions the goodness of God, that says, I don't believe that your way is the best way to go. I don't believe you have my best interests at heart. And therefore, I will take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to do what I want to do and what I think is best for me. John says that is what the devil did from the beginning and since then, he has been on a mission to tempt all of humanity to do the same, to distrust God and his goodness and to take matters into our own hands. You see, when God created the world, he enacted certain laws like the law of gravity to ensure that the world functioned well. He enacted certain laws and principles to ensure that relationships functioned with peace and with harmony. Well, Satan has sought to unravel all of that by tempting and enticing humanity to re rebel against God's created order and God's plan and to turn away from God and go their own way. 
And with respect to our first parents, Satan succeeded. And that's why John makes such strong statements like we read in the first part of verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. That's not very complimentary, is it? Or look at verse 10. He refers to sinners as children of the devil. Now, this doesn't mean that the devil created people. What John is saying here is when we defiantly and repeatedly distrust God and insist on going our own way and doing things our way, we are not only sinning, but we are reflecting the nature and the characteristics of the devil. We are declaring with the devil that our ideas are superior to God's, that we don't believe God's promises, and that we choose not to follow God's commands or precepts. Now, sometimes we may not make such bold declarations, but when we look at our behavior, that's exactly what we're doing or saying. This is the heart of sin and lawlessness. It isn't speeding on I-5, though I don't want to suggest that that isn't a sin. No, this is something a whole lot deeper. It's when we disregard God. When we rebel against his authority and we say, I will do what I want to do. This beautiful, powerful angel no longer wanted to worship his creator. Instead, he wanted to be worshipped. And it was this which changed the angel that God created into the devil that we read about in Scripture. Now, I'm sure that some of you are thinking, devil, you've got to be kidding me, right? I mean, isn't that some mythological character with horns and a red spandex suit? Well, the Bible's pretty clear here that the devil is real. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus called the devil the prince of this world. He acknowledged his reality. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul called him the God of this age. If you don't want to believe in the devil, if you don't want to believe in this thing called sin, then you have to construct a worldview that explains the terrible things that we do as human beings. Your worldview is going to have to explain how and why over 100 million people were slaughtered in the last century alone through the world wars, through Nazi Germany, and through the communist revolutions in Russia, China, Ukraine, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, North Korea, Cuba, Vietnam, Cambodia, Ethiopia, and Nicaragua. You're going to have to explain the millions that have been murdered in Iraq and Syria over the last five years. Bring it right to home, if you will, and you're going to have to explain what goes on in your heart and what goes on in mine. If you don't believe that there's evil in the world, then serve in the nursery or the toddler room right here in our church for an hour, and you're going to see evil displayed in full color. I've seen little ones hardly able to stand, suddenly scream for all they're worth, push another little one over just to get a certain toy. You see, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to admit that there's something wrong with this world and that there's a spiritual moral sickness in all of us. Here in our scripture text, John indicates it was the devil who started all of this sickness when he rebelled against God. Oh, make no mistake, we humans are capable of sinning and rebelling against God all on our own. We don't need the devil's help. He doesn't make us do it. He didn't make our first parents, Adam and Eve, do it either. They did it all on their own. But you see, from the beginning, <coughs> he has been doing all he can to deceive us to tempt us to distrust God and to rebel against God. Because ultimately, he wants to be worshipped. He wants us following him. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, Paul refers to the devil as the ruler 
of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul says the devil is at work in people's lives here on the planet, tempting them with lies and accusations and deceptions, whatever works to incite people to sin and go against God's best for them. And through this, the works of Satan have slowly permeated our planet in at least three major ways. First of all, in the form of hatred or the violation of God's agape love, including prejudice and pride and haughtiness, selfishness, indifference to the needs of others, abuse, resentment, envy, bitter feuds, sexual immorality, broken marriages and families. Furthermore, the works of the devil are seen in growing darkness on our planet, extinguishing the true light of God, often manifested in confusion and uncertainty and double-mindedness and lack of direction and purpose in life, fears and insecurities and obsessions and feelings of inadequacy. And then thirdly, the lawlessness and the works of the devil are also seen in the destruction of life that we see so many aspects of our culture through wars in our cities, in our homes. So what's the answer to all of this chaos and this carnage? I mean, we've tried so many things, have we not? We have tried education, we've tried counseling, we've tried economic, political, and legislative solutions. We've tried law enforcement. And all have had some positive effect. But overall, when we look at the state of our world, I think we would agree that despite all of our human attempts, we have had very limited effect. Which brings us back to the only real hope that we have. And John refers to it in verse 8. He says that Jesus came. Jesus came to our planet to destroy the works of the devil. He came to change us and then to change the world through us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took violence upon himself by dying on a cross to pay for our sins, to make us his own so that we could become children of God or born of God through faith in him. And in so doing, he pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of light. He replaced death with his eternal life. Darkness with his eternal light and hatred with his agape love. In the spiritual realm, he took our sins and he placed them on himself. And in exchange, he placed his perfect righteousness on us, not only setting us free from our guilt and our shame, but making us spiritually alive and righteous in the sight of God. The moment we put out, put our whole trust in Christ, he invaded our lives and we have become one with him. I love how Colossians 2.13 summarizes what Christ has done. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's referring to the devil and his demons, folks. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Sinful and lawless was who we were. But now, 
that we are in Christ, it is no longer who we are. The old is gone, the new has come. We have a new master, we have a new king, and we now march to the beat of a different drummer. Back in verse 1 of chapter 3, John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The love that God lavished on us was the coming of Jesus to this planet. And his subsequent death and resurrection, as I just described, so that we might be made spiritually alive, spiritually reborn, born of God, and become children of God and a friend of God. In John 3, verse 3, Jesus was having a conversation with a religious leader. His name was Nicodemus. And Jesus said this to him. He said, very truly I tell you, no one can see, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus didn't get what Jesus meant. And so Jesus went on to explain that just as every person is born physically into a human family, so every person must be born spiritually into God's family. Our physical birth results in life here on earth. Our spiritual birth results in life eternal in heaven with our Lord. So how does this second birth or this spiritual birth take place? Well, John explained it this way in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 12. And yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he described what that meant. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And what John is saying here is we are not all children of God automatically or simply because we're part of the human race, as some would have us believe. No, we become children of God when we turn to Christ, when we receive his grace and we turn to him in repentance and faith and ask him to save us and to invade our lives and to make us son, his sons and daughters. So you say, okay, I understand that, Pastor. Now help me to understand this. If it is true that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, then why after 2,000 years are the works of the devil still alive and well? Well, the reason is this, and I talked about it a moment ago. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil first by changing us. It always begins here, but then by changing the world through us. Acts 1.8, Matthew 28, 18-20. They tell us that God has chosen to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world through us. God wants his kingdom to come. He wants his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, but he wants to do it through us. And that will only happen to the degree that we trust him and pray and surrender our lives to him daily and respond in obedience to his promptings and leading in our lives. Look at verse 28, chapter 2. John writes, and now, dear children, continue in him. In other places of scripture, we're called to abide in him or to walk in the Spirit. All are referring to the same thing that John's talking about here, to continue in him. He calls us to continue in him, to abide in him, not so that 
not only so that we'll grow closer to him and experience the freedom and the victory over the work of the devil in our lives, but also so that he can destroy the work of the devil in the lives of others through us. And so if we want to see God's kingdom come, if we want to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven and see the works of the devil destroyed in our world, it's critical that we continue in him, that we continue to abide in him, to walk with him. So how can we do that practically? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, we abide in Christ by keeping an eternal perspective. If you look at verse 28, the passage that, the verse that starts this passage we're looking at, John reminds us that the same Jesus who died and rose again, he will return in power and glory for all the world to see one day. He is coming again, folks. Knowing that we are his children, we need not fear his return. But we can look forward with anticipation to his return. You know, many of us, I remember even myself in, when I was a teenager, I, I think there was this movie out called Thief in the Night or something like that. Scared the living daylights right out of me. I, I was just so afraid of Jesus' return. But folks, if you are his child, you have no reason to be afraid of his return. No reason at all. You can look forward to his return the same way that a family looks forward to daddy returning after having been gone for a month or two or whatever the case might be. But at the same time, knowing that Christ can return at any moment, serves as a reminder to set our hearts and our minds on eternal things rather than on temporary things. To set our minds on people in our lives who need the Lord rather than setting our minds solely on getting more stuff or, or being uh, more successful or, or pursuing our selfish interests. In verse 3, John writes, all who have this hope in him, the hope of his return, purify themselves just as he is pure. That means the reality of death and the reality of the hope of Christ's coming has a way of purifying our values and our priorities, reminding us daily that when Christ returns or when a friend of ours suddenly dies, what's going to matter most to us in that moment is not our achievements or our trophies or the stuff that we've accumulated. What's going to matter most in that moment is where our friends stood with God. It's going to remind us daily of the importance of abiding in the Lord, of praying for the people he's brought into our lives, leaning into the Lord for his guidance and what he would have us do to demonstrate his love to the people he's brought into our lives. We abide in him by having an eternal perspective and keeping an eye on the fact that he's coming again. Secondly, we abide in Christ by remembering we are a child of God. In chapter 3, 1, John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And then notice what it says next. And that is what we are. As a child of God, you no longer need to prove to others who you are. You no longer need to tell others how great you are through what you drive or where you live or who you know or the position that you hold at work. The fact is, you are a child of God. You are not 
what other people say about you. You are what God says about you. And that is all that's going to matter, folks. When life comes to an end, everything's going to be left behind, but your friendship with Jesus will continue. Now, of course, we want to be good stewards, don't we? We're called to be good stewards. By faithfully exercising the gifts, the talents that God has given to us, by using the resources that he has given to us for his glory, striving to be the best that we can be. But you see, abiding in Christ means that fundamentally my goal in life is to love the Lord, not to leave a legacy. In this life, my goal fundamentally is to be faithful, not to be successful. In this life, my goal is fundamentally to follow Jesus, not to leave a following. Now, there's another side to being a child of God that I want us to take note of. And to help us with that, I want to draw on an illustration I read recently by Brian Wilkerson. He says, think about Prince William and Prince Harry, who are grandsons of Queen Elizabeth. And because of their position in the family, they could one day sit on the throne of Great Britain. From the day that they were born, that possibility, that destiny has shaped them. Every aspect of their lives, their their schooling, their friendships, their family life, their hobbies, their behavior has been shaped by the possibility of becoming king one day. When you call someone a prince, you're not just describing who they are today, but who they could be one day. In the same way, when the Bible calls you a child of God, it's not just a declaration of who you are, but who you are becoming, who you will be one day in Christ when you see him face to face. That knowledge, that destiny, says John in verse 3 here, actually purifies us. It shapes us. It compels us to abide in Christ, to live for him. And to live every day of our lives in anticipation of the day that we're going to be with him and reign with him. It is like when a young man gets engaged. His commitment to be married changes the way that he begins to think about himself. And it also changes the way that he acts around members of the opposite sex. You see, the day is coming when he will be married. And therefore, his behavior begins to change accordingly today, not out of some sense of duty or legalism, but out of a sense of passionate love for his bride. Now, it's really important that we understand This is what John is getting at in the very difficult section of Scripture that follows. I mean, he talks in verse 28 of chapter 2 about the coming of Christ. The early part of chapter 3, he talks about who we are in Christ. And he celebrates all of that. He wants to lay a foundation of that. And then he gets into some really tough territory here. And I want to read it again. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, referring to Christ, is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. 
They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Now let me ask you, as I was reading this wonderful portion of Scripture, how many of you were getting just a bit nervous? Particularly about those passages about Christians no longer sinning. I mean, John states it pretty clearly here more than once. No one born of God will continue to sin. And some of you are thinking, you know, Pastor, that could be a problem. You're thinking about all that went on with your spouse on the way to church this morning in the car. And you're saying, I sinned big time this morning. So what does that mean, Pastor? I mean, is John saying here that the sign that you're a true Christian is that you will no longer sin? Well, the short answer to that is no. And you say, well, well, how do you know that? I mean, he says that right here. Well, there's a couple of reasons, but the main one is this. Go back now to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And we've already taught on this. But look at verse 8. Here's what it says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now look at verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. We make out God to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So John says here, if you claim to be without sin, you're lying. In other words, it's a sin to say that you're sinless. So, here's John writing this letter, you know, says this in chapter 1 and chapter 3. It's pretty clear that John isn't talking about sinless perfection here. He's got something else in mind. So what is he talking about? Well, first of all, I want you to notice that John does not say, no one who lives in him, in other words, in Christ can commit even one single act of sin. Now, he could have said that, but he didn't. Now, what he said, look at verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. In other words, no one who lives in Christ continues to progressively, passionately, unrepentantly indulge in the very things that Jesus came to destroy. Earlier we learned what sin is and what lawlessness is. And you'll recall lawlessness is this stiff-necked mindset that says, I don't care what you say, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I know the scriptures clearly teach that what I'm doing here is wrong. But I'm going to keep doing it anyways. I may rationalize it away. I may explain it away. I may completely ignore it. But I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. I'm not changing my attitude toward that person. I'm not changing my attitude toward that group of people. I'm not going to let go of my resentment or forgive that person. I'm just not. I'm, I'm not parting with my money. I'm not parting with my stuff. I might tip a little here and there, but be sacrificially generous? Not a chance, God. I'm not going to stop lying, gossiping, stealing, or doing what God clearly says is immoral. I have no interest in trusting you or following you or putting the interests of other people ahead of myself. Now, John implies here that if that is your attitude, if that is where your heart is, or even if it's not quite that negative, 
even if you've prayed a prayer, signed a prayer card, and made a few changes in your life to convince others in your life that you are now a Christian, but deep down inside, you know you're still very much in control. Your attitude toward other people hasn't changed. You have no intention or desire to surrender your life over to God and to his control and to living all out for him. Then you really need to question whether you're a Christ follower, whether you're born of God. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin in the way that we've talked about. Continue to have this mindset. I'm in control. I'm going to do what I want to do. Because God's seed, because you see, the person that's truly embraced Christ, something has happened. God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. John is saying, when we put our faith in Christ, he put his seed, his DNA in us. He became, we became a new creation. He in us and we are in him. We have been transformed. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We have not only been adopted by God, but he's moved in and become one with us. That means we have uh, new wants, new desires, because we're a new person. Spiritually, we were once walking in darkness, but Christ has come. He's come in and he's turned on the light. We see things differently. We react to things differently. We now have a new love for people and a desire to please God. Notice in verse 10, John says, this is how we know who the children of God are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Essentially says, real children of God are children who love God, who want to please God and do what's right, and who love others. When you're genuinely born of God, you are changed at the core of who you are. You want to love God and please God. You want to do what's right, and you have this growing love for people. You have Christ in you, and so you are destined, you see, to become more and more like him. But here's the thing. And please don't miss this. In this life, we will struggle to be like Christ. Remember the Apostle Paul. He admitted this struggle in the book of Romans. He said, I do what I do not want to do. And what I want to do, I do not do. Paul struggled and we struggle because we still have the old sin nature in us with all of its old habits and temptations and no one hit the delete button when we embrace Christ by faith. And so we're constantly tempted to turn members of our body over to our sinful nature. But you see, the fact that there is a struggle tells us that there's been a change. It tells us that Jesus has invaded our lives, that he's turned on the light, he's made us spiritually alive, and he will change and transform us from the inside out. If we lean into him, he will change us one step, one day at a time, and with the passing of time, we will look more and more like him. And we will increasingly be used by him to impact the lives of those around us. I'm going to close with an illustration I heard Ben Stewart give. He tells the story of moving into a new city and buying a new home there. It wasn't a new home, but it was new to them. And this home was poorly looked after. 
There was no grass. Everything he said in the yard was dead. And yet he says there was a proliferation of weeds to such a degree that I don't think even you can grasp. He says the weeds were robust, angry, and waist high. They were everywhere. Now let me ask you a question, he says. How did my neighbors know that a new resident had moved into that property? Because I took a weed eater and I went in there and I began to mow through that. I felt like a little man in a big salad. It's kind of wet with green stuff flying everywhere. My wife took seed and started planting grass seed. How do you know that a new resident moved in? Because a couple of months later, there were fewer weeds and there was much more grass. Now, were all the weeds gone? No. Was there much grass? No. In fact, if you were to drive by my house three months later, six months later, depending on how perfectionistic you are, you probably would have said, you know what, no one lives in that house because that yard is a wreck. But you see, you have no right to make that judgment because you haven't seen the progress. And friends, so it is in our spiritual lives. Our greatest assurance today is that we're one of the people that Christ has rescued. We are in him and he has invaded our lives. And in the spiritual realm, we are acceptable and we are righteous in the sight of God, not because we live perfectly in this life, but because in the spiritual realm, we are in Christ and he is perfect. But he's invaded our lives. And in this life, as we submit to him day after day, and we turn members of our body and our soul over to him rather than our carnal nature, he will slowly uproot the weeds in our lives and will begin to transform us and make us into the image of himself. He will grow our desire to love him and to follow him more, to please him and to love others more. And looking back over three months or six months, a year, we're going to look back and we're going to see fewer weeds and a whole lot more grass. But you see, in a one-moment drive-by snapshot, you may not be able to tell. So those of you who love to judge who's a Christian and who's not, you need to be really careful because you don't know the whole story. You don't see the whole picture. You don't see what Jesus sees. Because only he really sees what's going on in the heart. And so fellow Christian, remember, God knows your heart. He sees what's there. And if you're faking it, if you're going through all the right motions and acting like a great Christian, you may fool your friends or your spouse or your family but you can't fool God. One day you're going to stand before him and you're going to have to give an account for the decisions you made or the decisions you didn't make. But friends, if it's the real deal, then even if others question your sincerity, don't be discouraged. Even if the enemy would lie to you and say, it's useless, you'll never 
be what God wants you to be. God's disgusted with you. Give up, quit. Walk away from him. Even if you hear those accusations, don't quit. Don't even get discouraged because Jesus knows your heart. He knows your struggle. And he is walking with you through those struggles. And he will never leave you or forsake you. You just keep leaning into him. You just keep trusting him. You just keep serving him and other people. You just keep reading and meditating on his word. You just keep hearing God's word taught like you are right now. And you just keep saying, Lord, what are you saying to me through this difficult scripture that I've just read? And Lord, what is it that you want me to do? You just keep doing that. And you will know and experience the joy of the Lord in your life. And you won't have any doubt about the fact that you're his child. Would you please stand for closing prayer? There is no growth in our spiritual life if we don't daily and regularly get into God's word and after reading it say to him, Lord, what are you saying to me? And what are you asking me to do about it? We can hear the best sermons in the world. We can read the best books in the world. We can be challenged again and again if we don't ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me and what do you want me to do about it? We're not going to grow spiritually, which is why we do what we're going to do right now. And I just stop for a moment and ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me? And what is something you want me to do about it? What's one thing you want me to do about it? What's one small step you want me to take? So we're going to take a moment for that now, but... My challenge to you every week is, is that those questions will, you'll take those questions with you and reflect on them all week. But let's take a moment now. God is calling you to come home, to step out and embrace him by faith and to become his child. The prayer partners are making their way up here. I want you to come up right now, prayer partners. And as they make their way up here, I want to encourage you to come. They'd love to pray with you and to just help you with that decision. Others of you, I believe God's calling you to get off the fence. There's no middle ground with Jesus. You got to be all in with him. And if he's calling you to be all in, I want to encourage you to come and just recommit to that. Others, if you have a burden, you're heavy laden with something right now and you just need God's help, you come. 
people here would love to pray with you before you go. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, if God's calling you.